This is Barry Zelma speaking for Zelma on Insurance on YouTube. I am an attorney who has retired from the practice of law and now serves as an expert witness in insurance claims handling and bad faith and as an expert insurance claims handling consultant. The examination under oath is a technique available by contract in fire insurance contracts that have been issued for the last two or three centuries. One of the most important and effective cases dealing with the examination under oath is the decision of the, Cal of the United States Supreme Court called Claflin versus Commonwealth Insurance Company which is found at 3 Supreme Court 507 and was decided in 1884. The court decision follows. These actions were tried in the court below at the same time before the same jury and by stipulation of parties were heard in this court upon one record, the issues and questions in them respectively being the same. They were originally commenced in the District Court of the State of Minnesota for the County of Ramsey, the plaintiffs in error being plaintiffs below. The suits were founded on policies of insurance against fire issued by the several defendants upon a stock of dry goods in St. Paul, Minnesota, to Francis E. Barrett, who, having sold the property insured to William Murphy, assigned to him for his benefit the several policies of insurance with the assent of the insurance companies, the defendants. After the loss, Murphy assigned the policies of insurance and his claims under the same for value to the plaintiffs in error, who brought suit thereon on February 11, 1878. On March 7, 1878, several defendants filed petitions for the removal of the causes to the Circuit Court of the United States, alleging that the plaintiffs were citizens of the state of New York and the defendants were respectively citizens of Massachusetts or Missouri, or aliens subject to, uh, subjects of Great Britain in the Dominion of Canada being corporations created by the laws of those governments respectively. The question is whether, under the second section of the Act of March 3, 1875, a suit of a civil nature brought in a state court, where the matter in dispute exceeds the sum value of $500, in which there is a controversy between citizens of different states or between citizens of a state and foreign states, citizens or subjects may be removed to the circuit court, which suit because it is founded on a contract in favor of an assignee, could not have been brought in the circuit court if not, no assignment had been made, not being the case of a promissory note negotiable by the law merchant or of a bill of exchange. After the Supreme Court resolved the issue of jurisdiction, finding it applied to the circuit court, the Supreme Court then dealt with the issues at hand, and it stated, quote, 
The respective causes were brought by the plaintiffs on certain policies of insurance bearing date as follows. That of Commonwealth Insurance Company of Boston, bearing date of 11th January 1877, and that of several other insurers. All insuring Francis E. Barrett against loss or damage by fire on her stock of dry goods contained in the three-storied store metal roof building. Situated at number 37 East 3rd Street, St. Paul, Minnesota, for a period of three months after their respective dates, with the condition that $35,000 other insurance shall be allowed. The respective policies were assigned by Francis E. Barrett, the assured, to one William Murphy on the 7th day of February 1877, with the consent and approval of the respective companies. On the 25th day of February 1877, said stock of goods was damaged by fire in the amount of $11,804.72, as found and determined by the arbitrators appointed by the assured and the respective companies. The policy of Western Assurance Company of Toronto, Canada, contained, among other things, the following provision. Quote, the insured shall, if required, submit to an examination or examinations under oath by any person appointed by the company, and subscribe thereto when the same is reduced to writing, and also all fraud or attempted fraud by false swearing or otherwise shall forfeit all claim on this company, and be a perpetual bar to any recovery under this policy. Close quote. The other insurance companies also had similar language with regard to examinations under oath and fraud. The Supreme Court went on to note that upon the trial of said causes, there was evidence tending to show that the respective defendants required the assured William Murphy to appear before the appointed agent and submit to an examination under oath and answer all questions touching his knowledge of anything relating to such loss or damage and his claim thereon, and to subscribe such examination, the same being reduced to writing which the said Murphy did, as required, and that upon such examination, the question of ownership of said goods by said Murphy was made by the defendants. And said Murphy examined at length upon the same, and he answered certain questions relating to the manner in which he paid on Francis E. Barrett for said stock at the time of his alleged purchase thereof falsely. And there was evidence tending to show that he answered thus with no purpose to deceive and defraud the insurance companies, but for the purpose of showing himself upon the examination consistent with a statement that he had made about it a day or two subsequent to the purchase of said stock to R.G. Dunn & Company's commercial agency at St. Paul, Minnesota, with a view of obtaining a large commercial credit in eastern cities. There was evidence tending to show that on the ninth day of February, 1877, said William Murphy went to said agency and reported that he had bought the stock of Francis E. Barrett for 
that he had paid for the same in cash and securities, and plaintiffs claimed that if the false statements were made to the agents of the insurance company upon examination, even though made upon a material question without intent to deceive or defraud the insurance companies, it would not prevent a recovery upon the policies and requested the court upon that point to charge as follows, quote, if you find from the evidence that any incorrect statements made by William Murphy upon his examination were made for the purpose of protecting himself against the statements made by him to the commercial agency for the purpose of obtaining more credit than he was actually entitled to, and not for the purpose of deceiving and defrauding the defendants, then such statements constitute no defense to this action. And also, they ask, no false statements made by Murphy on his examination under oath, or otherwise, constitute a defense to this action unless the same were made upon material issues between him and the defendants. And unless you are satisfied from the evidence that Mr. Murphy made them knowingly and willfully with intent thereby to deceive and defraud the defendants, the Close quote. The court, His Honor Judge Miller, addressing the jury, refused to give said instructions, but told the jury in its charge that the said questions relating to the manner in which Mr. Murphy paid said Francis E. Barrett for said stock at the time of his alleged purchase thereof were upon a material point upon which the defendants had a right to interrogate Mr. Murphy and were material questions to which they had a right to true answers from Murphy in said examinations, and upon the point in controversy upon which the said instructions were asked, charged the jury as follows, to wit, quote, It is said here, and the point is urged with a good deal of force, that unless Mr. Murphy made these false statements, if they were raised, and it is conceded that they were false, with the intent to deceive and defraud these corporations. And if he made them with the intent to deceive and defraud someone else, that is immaterial to this issue. I do not think that is the law. I do not think it was necessary in order to avoid the policy that the statements made by Mr. Murphy should have been solely or even partly with a view to get money wrongfully out of the companies. However, that is a point I wish to draw your attention to. If these statements had been wholly immaterial, that doctrine may be right. If it was a matter that the company had no right to inquire into or interrogate him about, if he did swear falsely and intended to deceive someone else, that does not interfere with the policy. But these companies had a right to have from him the truth about every matter that was material is evidence to show whether he owned these goods or not. They had a right to have the truth from him, whatever his intentions might have been. That is, as far as the truth was material, and so far as his testimony before the notary had a tendency to mislead the companies on an important matter, it was false swearing and false testimony within the meaning of the policy, and would avoid the policy. 
if he stated that which was intended for their action and which would probably influence their action, and these statements were false, then he swore falsely within the meaning of the policy, though he did not intend to cheat them, but intended to cheat somebody else. For without looking to his motives, the company had a right to an honest statement from him to all questions that went to show whether he was the owner of these goods or not. Close quote. To which refusals to charge as requested and to said charge as given, plaintiff's counsel thereupon duly accepted, and after the rendition of the verdict for the defendants, moved for a new trial on account thereof, and said motion was duly argued. Evidence presented at the trial seemed to indicate that uh, Ms. Barrett purchased the property under a fraudulent excess, and therefore the value of the property was exaggerated at the time Murphy acquired it. And as the court stated, quote, it is quite obvious that upon the issues as made in the pleadings and actually tried, it was material to show what title and interest Murphy had at the time of the loss in the property insured. If he had no insurable interest, that certainly would have been a defense. The object of the provisions in the policies of insurance requiring the assured to submit himself to an examination under oath to be reduced to writing was to enable the company to possess itself of all knowledge and all information as to other sources and means of knowledge in regard to the facts material to their rights, to enable them to decide upon their obligations and to protect them against false claims. And every interrogatory that was relevant and pertinent in such an examination was material in the sense that a true answer to it was of the substance of the obligation of the issue. A false answer as to any matter of fact material to the inquiry would be fraudulent if it made with intent to deceive the insurer would be fraudulent if it accomplished its result it would be a fraud effected if it failed it would be a fraud attempted and in the matter and if the matter were material and the statement false to the knowledge of the party making it and willfully made the intention to deceive the insurer would be necessarily implied for the law presumes every man to attend natural consequences of his acts. No one can be permitted to say, in respect to his own statements upon a material matter, that he did not expect to be believed. And if they are knowingly false and willfully made, the fact that they are material is proof of an attempted fraud, because their materiality in the eye of the law consists in their tendency to influence the conduct of the party who has an interest in them and to whom they are addressed. If a person tells a falsehood, the natural and obvious consequence of which, if acted on, is injury to another, that is fraud in law. 
an attempt made by counsel for the plaintiffs in error to distinguish between matters that are material only as evidence and matters material to the conduct and liability of the defendants in error thereunder, and in argument the distinction is illustrated by the following statement. Quote, where the question is as to the extent of the loss and the insured knowingly exaggerates his loss and makes false statements concerning the same, his conduct must of necessity be held fraudulent, for he invites the company to take a false position, to assume new and unjust obligations, to pay a loss that has not been sustained and does not exist, to do that which will prejudice and damage the company. But if the assured had made a true statement of his actual loss, and then answered falsely for personal reasons as to the parties for whom he had purchased the goods, or the value of those purchased from a certain house, then there could be no fraud because there could be no prejudice or damage. The questions would be material as evidence, but not material as the rights and liabilities of the company. But th this position is untenable. The fact whether Murphy had an insurable interest in the merchandise covered by the policy was directly an issue between the party. By the terms of the contract, he was bound to answer truly every question put to him that was relevant to the inquiry. His answer to every question pertinent to that point was material and made so by the contract. And because it was material as evidence, so that every false statement on the subject knowingly made was intended to deceive and was fraudulent, and it does not detract from this conclusion to suppose the purpose of Murphy in making these false statements was not to deceive and defraud the companies as is stated in the Bill of Exceptions and Certificate, but for the purpose of preventing an exposure of the false statement previously made to the commercial agency in order to enhance his credit. The meaning of that we take to be simply this, that his motive for repeating the false statements to the insurance companies was to protect his own reputation for veracity and that he would not have made them but for that cause. But what is that but that he was induced to make statements known to be false, intended to deceive the insurance companies lest they might discover, and others through them, the falsity of his previous statements, in other words, that he attempted by means of a fraud upon the companies, to protect his reputation and credit. In any view, there was a fraud attempted upon the insurers, and it is not lessened, because the motive that induced it was something in addition to the possible injury to them that it might work. The supposition proceeds upon the very ground of the false statement of a material matter, knowingly and willfully made, with the intent to deceive the defendants in error, and is no palliation of the fraud that Murphy did not mean thereby to prejudice them, but merely to promote his own personal interest, in a matter not involved in the contract with them. By that contract, the companies were entitled to know from him all the circumstances of his purchase of the property insured, 
including the amount of price paid and what manner payment was made, and false statements, willfully made under oath, intended to conceal the truth on these points, constituted an attempted fraud by false swearing, which was a breach of the conditions of the policy, and constituted a bar to recovery of the insurance. Such we understand to be the precise effect of the rulings of the justice presiding at the trial of the case in the court below. In refusing the request to instruct the jury was asked by the plaintiffs in error, and in giving the instructions contained in the charge accepted to, and finding no error in them, the judgment is affirmed. And that's the end of a recitation of most of the decision of Claflin versus the insurance company. The full text is available in my book, The Insurance Examination Under Oath, Second Edition, available from my website, zalma.com, and from amazon.com as both a paperback and a Kindle book. If you found this video useful, please subscribe to my YouTube channel. Thank you again for your attention.